Hello, everyone, and welcome to this live episode of To the Moon, Allison, where we talk about the top and trending works in fantasy, science fiction, speculative fiction, and romance. I'm your host, Allison Martine Hubbard, author of works of contemporary romance and speculative fiction. I am so glad to be joined again today by author James Rollins. Hi, Dr. Jim. How are you? I appreciate the doctor uh, moniker, Allison. And again, thank you for having me back on the program. It was I had an enjoyable conversation last time, so thanks for having me back. I, I was a, I was afraid I was going to get banned, but uh, no, you would never get banned. We can talk about all the spay and neutering, and we will never ban you from the show. And we were just talking before we went live about how we need like the emotional support animal to calm us beforehand. I don't have that. I'm extra stressed because my daughter is at outdoor ed. I can't even pet her. I have other kids and none of them are pets. So I really shouldn't treat them the same, but some of them do act like that sometimes and say pet me. So I'm wondering if the same thing happens, but I have to take them to pediatricians, not veterinarians, but I'm pretty sure you have more schooling than they do. So I think you'd be fine. It is challenging because they, you know, you're dealing with, uh, you know, patients that can't speak. So it's always a, you know, fun trying to figure out, you know, between, I always describe veterinary medicine as more psychology with the patient, the, the client across the table from you, and <laughs> yeah. necessarily the, the med- medical aspect of the patient sitting on the, t- on, the, on the table between you two. Yeah. And it's like, and who's paying the bills here? It's not the poodle. It's exactly. usually, you know, if, is the person across the table happy? And it's it's kind of similar because not that long ago, my eldest and I were both sick. So we went to urgent care and they took us in together. And my daughter's 12 years old and the doctor's looking at me and it's like, okay, mom, tell me what's wrong. And I just look at her like, she speaks. You can just, you can talk to her. Like, I, I don't need to translate. Like, I'll tell you what's wrong with me and she'll tell you what's wrong with her. And it's pretty much the same stuff. And we're both here for drugs. So just write our prescriptions and let us go on our way. But yeah, littler ones, it's a little different. So maybe a pediatrician for babies is kind of like with the dogs. Cause either way, not toilet trained and I uh, can't speak. So very similar. Exactly. Similar. Well, I, I love the fact that you're a veterinarian in that books that we're here to talk about we're here to talk about specifically the moonfall saga and this book which is the second in the series the cradle of ice and i just i want to tout these books as books for animal lovers for animals that don't really exist which is me because these books i know they're written by someone who knows science and knows zoology and doesn't just fall back on some of the fantasy tropes of it's a unicorn or that's an elf or okay animals i know elves are not animals i'm not suggesting elves or dwarves or animals but well, yours, they i mean they, yeah. they are by, by definition also <laughs> we, we are also animals i'm just i'm not trying to like diminish and i'm not trying to throw elves and dwarves any okay. shade okay. like don't degrade lesser than you're less, no no but the fact that you have these amazing animals and we were talking beforehand i listened to this book and the narrator is fantastic i highly recommend the narration but then you got to find these pictures of these animals because i still need to know can you can you tell me is there a sort of real world analog for what an orca is? Um, yes. Uh, one of the very first books I wrote um, for my under my thriller moniker is you know is uh, a book called Ice Hunt, and it, it also had these walking whales. Because uh, once upon a time whales had limbs. They did. And, uh, so I was going back to, you know, if there was a change in the planet. Uh, rotation and things were much more stressful and oceans became you know frozen or land became water water became land to adapt the whales might you know basically 
devolve into to, to resurrecting those limbs that they lost because basically physiologically whales still have the anatomy of still having limbs in there and so it would not be that hard for them to devolve into to needing those extra appendages so the orcsas which are basically these these winged um uh, sort of almost a cross between a, a norwal and a, and a walking whale and yeah. i was going with well the fact that it was orcsa i'm thinking okay the world, the word is similar to orca. So I'm going, is that intentional? I'm assuming it was. Yeah, it was. And the horns, I'm going, it seems like a narwhal. I should have brought my kid's stuffed narwhal in here. She has a couple of them. One of them is clearly just a dolphin that someone stuck a unicorn on. Like, because it's not in the right place. Like, it should be here, not here. Like, the narwhal's horn is a tooth. How is it growing out of the middle of the top of its head? I'm kind of worried about it, but it's also animatronic and just goes off randomly. So if I brought it in, it would just start going eh! during the show. Might be a little. Could annoying. be good in a laugh track. I wouldn't mind that. <laughs> Instead of a laugh track, it's Windy the Narwhal just going hee the whole time. So yeah, it was fun. You know, when I was um, building the idea for the story of a planet, a, a fantasy novel set on a planet that stopped spinning in the past. Basically, it's, uh, I'm not going to ruin it. It's not going to ruin anything. As the planet is Earth, because yes. the I'm like on page three, they call the planet Earth. So if you figure <laughs> it out. I spell it a little bit different, but it's pretty obvious. Um, and so once this planet top stops spinning, uh, you have one side always facing the sun, one side internally in darkness, and the habitable climb between those extremes is really where most life can only survive. But, uh, you know, life is going to find a way, uh, both on the southern side and in the uh, sunblasted side. And uh, so I, it was fun just as a veterinarian, leaning back on my biology background. Uh, I talked to astrobiologists, xenobiologists, trying to figure out how would life evolve in that in these pl planet of extremes. And so I began to, again, I didn't want to just, you know, put a dragon on a mountaintop because that's where dragons belong. Uh, I wanted to make the, the creatures evolve from their landscape, uh, from the environmental niche in which they were basically you know, struggling to survive in. And uh, so I, I like building that, that beastie area to, to fit the environment. But what was also a lot of fun, which you mentioned the pictures, was um, in the first book and in the second book, there's about a dozen pictures of the di different creatures that... Uh, I describe in the novel, but my description of the novels are like most novelists. Uh, I'm just going to give you some of a thumbnail of what they look like, you know, and I'm going to leave the imagination to fill in the gaps to the reader. But when I approached a, uh, Dana Fiddler, a wonderful graphic artist who has a biology background herself to draw pictures of these, these sort of, um, biological sketches, something you might find like in a, in a naturalist, mm -hmm. uh, turn of the century type of, of yeah, um, very Audubon society. That's what they yeah. feel like to me. Yeah. So I'm going to make it, you know, feel like, like you're reading a scientific text from this world. And, uh, you know, she wanted more details than I had. I give her a little description. Here you go. Here's an orcsa. She's and like, no, I need to know more about what's its spine doing. Can you tell me what, where are the joints? Are we, what's the, what's the musculature like? So that would function that way. And, and Hey, you know, this creature has a tail, you know, but how long is that tail? Is it prehensile? <laughs> We have claws on this creature. Are they hooked? And then we talked about, well, you know, this creature is arboreal, tree-dwelling. Therefore, you know, maybe it does have a prehensile tail because it's going to need that to, you know, maneuver through the branches. And maybe the, it makes sense that the claws would be hooked to get a better grip on these those surfaces. So those fine details, we sort of hammered out between the two of us. Uh, so it was fun, you know, going back and forth and, and challenging me, like, you know, from an anatomical standpoint, from a physiological mm -hmm. standpoint from a morphological standpoint, you know, how to make these creatures come alive so that they, they don't feel like just a pure, you know, whimsical fantasy creature. I wanted them to feel like they belong to that environment. 
Well, and it totally works that way because I loved how, so the first book we leave with this group of explorers or this, this group of adventurers rather, and then they split off into different directions. And so even though we've gotten a good introduction in the first book, we're coming into new worlds and new animals and things that these people haven't seen as well as we haven't seen. So it's not just like, okay, second book, same world. It's like, no, we've got new things here and places. And again, you said life finds a way where a lot of the story takes place in a, in a, an area where our main characters didn't think there really was life. Like, oh, by the way, there's a lot going on over here that we didn't even know about where prior explorers had basically just fallen off the map and never returned. And we find out, oh, well, there's a reason that they didn't return and this is where they are and what they've done and how they've integrated themselves with that society and how that society has evolved differently and how that factors in. And I love that because then it was like, okay, same world, but a new expansion, like an expansion pack from the first <laughs> Exactly. New animals and and variations on animals, including the bats. And I just, I love all the bats in this. And again, you create these animals and it has to come from your veterinary background because you approach it, yes, as a biologist, but these animals, again, you, you like to hurt me with your animals. You always do. <laughs> You're like, I will always create an animal and make you fall in love with it. And then I'm going to do things and make you cry a lot. So not happy about that, but it's a good telling. I guess. <laughs> I, I, I care about humans. I really do. But if you want me to start crying, hurt an animal or make me care about an animal, put an animal in peril. And then I'm, I'm worried. Same way. You know, <laughs> basically whenever I teach writing, I always, you know, it always says you should write from a point of passion. So, you know, I love animals. So, you know, this on my brain that was trained to be a veterinarian, you know, from third grade, I knew I wanted to be a veterinarian. Uh, but when I stopped practicing full time, a weird thing began happening. I wasn't aware of it. Uh, there's an old adage, writers are naked on the page. You reveal a lot more of yourself on, on, when you write than you think you do. And I thought that was hogwash. I thought, hey, whatever, that, I don't believe that. Until I got this email from this gentleman said, hey, you know, I'm reading your series of novels and enjoying them. But how come, you know, about eight or nine novels in, suddenly all of your characters seem to have these animal sidekicks. You know, this one has an orphan jaguar cub. Uh, this is a wolf rescue dog. This is a military working dog. Uh, you know, how come? And I realized that when that transition occurred, when I basically was still writing and practicing full time, I was getting my, this side of my brain was happily being right. satisfied with my veterinary career. Uh -huh. But once I stopped practicing full time, unbeknownst to me, my, my desire to be still, you know, involved with animals, you know, crept into my writing. So all of a sudden, all these animals started to appear in my novels because I wasn't getting the outlet from a daily veterinary medicine. Um, and, you know, maybe I've, you know, been now not practicing full-time, even though I do do some volunteer work with a spay-neuter clinic. Uh, I'm not getting my full You're you know, not getting your fix. that side. I'm not getting my fix. <laughs> so, um, you know, this fantasy series is chock full of animals simply yes. because, you know, now I'm, I'm, a couple decades out of my full-time practice. So it's, uh, I'm going to make you. We're going to feel it. All about the animals that I love <laughs> and I will do mean things to them just to make you cry. Well, you do it very well. And I could say maybe the farther away you go, it's just going to be full animal characters. We don't even need people anymore. It's going to be talking <laughs> animals, a la Disney. I mean, I, I laugh because like all of them have animal sidekicks. And then I wonder if you're secretly writing Disney princesses because they all have the animal sidekicks too. But they're they're not usually like military working dogs and things like that. But you've you've put animals in peril, whether they're animals we know or biologically, like genetically 
genetically augmented animals, because I've read that. I know Igor the parrot still makes me cry just to think about. Um, and then now you've got all these animals and they're not even animals I can go to the zoo and look at and go, oh, that reminds me of, because they aren't even real animals other than kind of the well, bats. I Igor was. Uh, Igor, Igor was. was. He was Igor, a parrot. Yeah, that was my parrot I had. I adopted from a, a client of mine brought in. She was like 80 something years old. She brought in this old parrot. Well, not old, it was a 65 year old parrot. And I uh, said, hey, um, I want to I want to euthanize uh, Igor, and I said, well, you know, our policy is we don't euthanize healthy animals. So if you, if you can't take care of him, we will we will find a home for him. And being a large practice, a large part of my practice was, was birds. I, I always loved birds, and uh, so I ended up adopting Igor myself. And uh, Igor was sort of an irascible character. Uh, you know, the story was that that her son had a. Uh, had purchased the bird when it was like a hand-fed baby. Uh, you know, they, as life goes on, she lost her son. Um, so the, the bird was adopted by her, her and her husband. Uh, they had the bird for 20 years. The bird hated her, <laughs> loved, her loved her husband, which some birds are. Sometimes they are like they adopt one person. And uh, so then her husband passed away. And now she is, you know, left with this bird that hates her. <laughs> No, it's like a, I shouldn't laugh at this. Like also and these things, and then her own pet hates her. It's like yeah. that sounds like the kind of luck I'd have. Like, great, even my own pet doesn't like me. But she she put up with them until her her doctor said, "Hey, you know, the feather dust from this bird is affecting you from a, you know you're getting lung infections from this. You need to get rid of your bird." So that's how Igor ended up in my life, and that's how come Igor ended up in Ultra Eden as a character in that story. So there's always a little personal part I of didn't that. realize Igor was a real bird. And we talked to you, but when we had you on Vox Vominus and we talked, I talked to you a little bit about Alter of Eden, you weren't, you were releasing a series of short stories within another series. So we weren't specifically on for that. So I didn't get into it that much. So I didn't know Igor's backstory or his tragic backstory or how much he hated his owner. So did, did he transition well to the new home? Did he like you better than his former right. owner? I think maybe it was just, I don't know, some birds spawn to male or female. They seem right. to, I don't know, the timber deeper birds. I don't know what it is that they key in on. But, uh, or maybe he was just happy to get away from her. So he was just, <laughs> maybe know, it was a mutual know. thing. Like neither one of them liked each other. And he out. Ways. So I had Igor for 20 years. So he had died when he was 85 years old. So he was a. Uh, I don't think people have any idea how long certain birds live because I think people mostly think of, okay, rodents usually don't have a very long shelf life. Cats live a bit longer. Dogs totally depends on the breed, but I mean, a bird's going to outlive me. If I were to get a, par a parrot now, it would absolutely outlive me. So figure out what you're doing. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, I think we think of turtles. Turtles live a long time, but I don't think we recognize that birds also can have a really different lifespan than humans. And what do you do with a pet that's going to outlive you? Like, I know that people have to worry about when you go into a nursing home or like an assisted living center, can you bring your little dog or your cat? And some of them can, and some of them you, you can't. And then where do those animals go? So exactly. it gets tricky. Well, no one's trying to rehome any meerbats right now or any orcas, uh, mostly because they don't exist. Um, okay. Joanne, Joanne Paulson says she wants to be reincarnated as a bird plus flying. See, okay, Joanne, you got to specify though, because if you're a penguin or an emu, you're not going to get to fly. <laughs> maybe or run really fast but you gotta put that fine detail before you get reincarnated okay be like careful that, that. that monkey uh, paw wish you gotta be careful yes. quite you know fine detail of your uh your wish 
Well, it's like the gin. They always have like, oh, you wish for this, but it's going to be bad. We're going to find a bad way. Okay. Joanne wants to be a parrot. That's fine. You can be a parrot, Joanne. That's fine. <laughs> but I mean, if I want to fly, I think I'd rather be a bat because I think I want to stick with the, the mammals. I want to stick with things that I understand. I don't know about the whole hollow bones thing. I don't, I don't know if, okay, Joanne's just listing more birds now. Eagle. Uh, but I, I loved the inclusion of a variation on the type of bats because we, in the first book, for those who've read the first book, we have these mere bats who are an integral part of one of our main characters, Nick's, and her family and her backstory. And she was basically raised by a bat or was was suckled by a bat, basically. And there's there's some very sweet imagery in both books about how she was basically a, a litter mate with this other bat. And then they go to this new place and there are some other creatures there that are kind of terrifying in comparison to the mirror bats. And I'm, I'm sitting there trying to think of scale, how big these things are. And I'm just going, okay, they're bigger than me. Everything's bigger than me. They'll probably try to eat me. This is going to go badly for me. <laughs> but you also have something that's introduced that we often don't think about in terms of mammals, which is the hive mind. And I don't know how that all interplayed with the idea of the bridal song and this kind of mental control. And when you have a group of animals that have a hive mind, what was the inspiration for that and working that into the plot? Well, one of the reasons I, uh, first, I'm fascinated by bats to begin with. Uh, so that was one of the reasons that the mere bats became a major part of the story. But I also like the fact that, you know, bats communicate ultrasonically. And we're, even now today, we're finding, biologists now are finding that the extent of ultrasonics is not just simply a matter of echolocation for seeing things. There's a whole intricate level of communication that occurs with their echo sounding. And so I was fascinated by that. And, uh, so I got to thinking, uh, if someone was slightly genetically engineering uh, bats to be biological sentinels, um, the bats would not be a bad choice because uh, you can theoretically create sort of a hive mind in this this uh, species, similar, similar to, to bees and other hive mind type of species, where you can use the ultrasonic to, to bind them all together. And then I got to thinking, you know, I, I didn't want the magic in my world to be just magic. I wanted sort of a scientific basis for it. So, you know, bridal song is the ability of some people where they can use uh, their own voice and song basically to, to manipulate their environment, to uh, control other beasts. And, but I didn't want just to be, oh, you're just magically endowed to be able to do this. I, I wanted the fact that somebody genetically created these genes to make these bats be able to communicate this way. And what if that gene ends up uh, via, you know, blood transfusion or, or a predation ends up being incorporated into some genetic human lines where that gene becomes a part of a certain genetic lines. And that gives you the, also the ability to put, you know, not as, as well as the mirror bat can, but you can basically use a, a form of ultrasonics to control your environment. So that's where that all came about. Well, and I liked how it also worked together both on the human side and the incorporation of the human powers so that you also sometimes had people acting in concert. So it's like, okay, this is too much for one person to do, but drawing together multiple powers and acting as like amplification or as a power boost. And then some people have different abilities within that. And again, some of it's genetic, but I like what you said about it being like a genetic manipulation. Like this did not just naturally occur. So like, like you said, kind of spoiler alert that this really is earth. We aren't given quite a sense of how far past our day that this is happening, but it's so far in the future that we can't really even imagine. But so of course, every time something happens, I'm thinking, okay, at what point did in, in our past, did this start 
start happening and what was the impetus to do that and what was the technology that led it there, which brings me to Shia and the bronze people. I don't even remember if I talked to you that much about Shia and the bronze statues last time, even though it's it's a big part of the book and it's a bigger part in the second book yeah. as the concept of who these bronze creatures are, these bronze people, for lack of a better word, and learning about who may have created them and why they were created and what their purpose is and what their goals are and whether they are trustworthy individuals. Like, I can't think of any analog and anything else I've read that is like that. Like, yes, they're like living statues, but not exactly. Well, my idea for, for creating these, basically, uh, I don't think I'm going to read too much, is that the bats were set, were, were basically engineered to be biological sent sentinels to, to monitor for any disaster, knowing that the the ancient past when the world began to slowly start to, to spin, people became concerned, you know, what's going to happen? We need to prepare for that. Uh, it's going to be a total breakdown of society, civilization is collapse. Uh, we're most likely all the technology is going to be forgotten about. Uh, so we need to start anticipating that. So they built these biological sentinels to to monitor, to, to be basically watching for dangers. And, and specifically, they were worried about the moon crashing into the earth, which is a big threat for this series, is that Nyx has a prophecy uh, that uh, the moon is crashing into the world. Alchemist, the planet, knows, hey, the moon's you know, incrementally growing larger. Something's wrong here. Um, so you know, back in the past, I worried that there's a possibility. Because even today, when I was speaking to scientists about creating a tightly locked planet, I asked them, well, what would happen to the moon? If you had a moon, like our moon, mm -hmm. What would happen to the moon if the world stopped spinning? And like right now, very slowly, the moon is drifting away from our, our world. Uh, incrementally, the, at this point, the moon keeps drifting away. And uh, But when the, when the planet stops spinning, that might either accelerate that or it might reverse that and be, bring, start causing the moon to crash into the planet. So I'm, I imagine that in the past, you know, scientists were aware of this threat. Um, so they wanted to leave biological monitors. So... They created the mirror bats, engineered the mirror bats. But of course, mirror bats don't have opposable thumbs. So they, <laughs> they, they needed somebody that could manipulate the environment in greater detail. So they also uh, created these uh, automatons, basically AI-driven automatons that would also be buried as sleepers around the planet that the bats could awake with their ultrasounds when the danger was alerted. And they could come up and, and try to correct what needs to be corrected. But of course, AIs being AIs, they don't exactly want to go along with everything that <laughs> previously plotted so i never you, trust the ai yeah, so there's a friction between you know a group that's still trying to to obey their masters that said you know you need to save the planet versus the others that say well do we really need humans you know we could survive just fine on a desolate you know ruined planet all we need is resources um so that becomes a friction as, as the storyline in, in the books continues it's four book arc this is the second book in the four book arc and you're going to see that become more and more of a problem well, it's definitely going to be a bigger problem as things go on, but you also have not just friction between the natural world and humanity in it, or past humanity and things that they set in motion, but of course, you can't go anywhere without having just humans fighting with humans. That's kind of just what we like to do, and there was so much betrayal in this, and the I had to actually do a page, because since I was listening to it, I had to get all the different alliances. I'm like, okay, so this king has these kids, and then this one's engaged to this person. I don't think he really wants to be engaged to her, though, but I don't think he was ever given much of a choice, but then he's not the next in line, but maybe he is, because twins. There was 
so much there. Do you have a chart somewhere where you can keep track of who is engaged to who, who's who got who lost their head halfway through the book, who got a star, a, who lost a hand? There's a lot going on. The Bible of of the of the storyline that I keep track of everything, and uh, you'll find some addendums in the in the third book where you'll get some you know, in case you forget. Because I don't I always <laughs> I'll need it. I don't encourage people to jump in the second book. Some people have jumped in the second book and they seem to still understand it enough. I don't think I could have jumped to the second book and understand I could. it. Really, no. You know, when I do my my uh, Sigma Four series, you know, I, I always encourage people you can just join and jump in anywhere because it's a episodic type of series. Yeah. Um, I'm going to preload whatever you need to know for that book. I'm going to let you know. Uh, whereas I always describe fantasy series more as one big book chopped into pieces. Mm -hmm. um, Slice. Like, there's a little, you know, crisis points that are that are. Um, uh, dealt with in each book, but ultimately it's a basically a big story. And so, uh, so as the story gets on, it gets bigger and bigger and I need to recognize that. So in the third book, I am a compendium so you can uh, <laughs> her back to. I'm going to definitely need that because I was making notes this time. And again, since I was listening to it, it would probably have been easier if I could just turn back and confirm. Okay. So this person, okay, Chubaya is related to, and then, okay, that's the brother, because you've got some of these families are larger and rural families, and then it didn't help me because I'm looking at the map from book one. I'm going, Kiss of Limery isn't even on here, and then I'm just trying to pretend I don't even know how to spell some of these things because I'm not seeing them written down, going... I like that name. Is that a real place? Of course, it's not a real place. But then because we are looking at a world that's very far distant from our world, I was wondering about some of the cultural backgrounds, mostly because I just want to cast the right actors when this becomes an HBO thing. Not that they're going to consult me. No one has ever asked me for a consultation on any casting for any shows. I just would like to be consulted personally. <laughs> me too. Well, hopefully, I mean, this definitely would translate to something like, because it's so immersive and, and expansive with the different casting and, and the, the sprawl of the families and the different kingdoms and the alignments, and there's there's this political intrigue. So on one storyline, we've got people going on more of a straight adventure story and dealing with what are they going to find in the wild, and the other places we've got kidnappings and people being aligned for marriages that may or may not happen. And then wait, are you even allowed to be over there? Oh no, your, your places you're not supposed to be. It gets very, very complicated quickly. And my brain was like, hold on, going to write this down. Yeah. I mean, basically <clears throat> the first book I introduced the cast of characters and, you mm -hmm. <clears throat> know, I split them up. You know, one half goes out into the frozen half of the world and they, they have a mission to accomplish at the same time. They're being pursued by the enemy uh, they uncover a vast new sort of society and world on that that everybody considered to be frozen or, or mm -hmm. inhospitable and, and desolate, but you know, life finds a way, and it did. And whereas uh, in the plant, on the crown itself, which is the habitable climb between those two extremes, uh, war has been brewing for a while. There's hints of that in the first book, some friction yeah. in the beginning, people you know butting heads, and and it comes to a to a breaking point in this novel where, you know, it's no longer just, uh, you know, the drums of war, it's outright war. Exactly. Well, and, and then because we have some of the characters that we'd already met and seeing them going, okay, by the way, you're over there now and you have this, this role to play, but you may not be able to accomplish that because you're being kidnapped by other folks and you're being used as a pawn in this political war as people are vying for power. And then we bring back in the, 
the Sentinels and other characters that are having their own sway on things because it's like, well, it's not just politics. It's also bringing in, well, what's best for the world, not just for this particular kingdom. And how is that going to impact with the prophecy and with Moonfall? Because I don't, I don't see how the moon falling into the earth could ever be a good thing. It seems like something we'd want to avoid. Exactly. <laughs> so when, when you, when you worked with all of that and having your maps and figuring out where things are going, what was your inspiration as far as some of these political leaders? Were, was there anybody that you're like, okay, I want to draw on this person's ambition or this person's charisma, or are you just making these people up going, I need this guy over here. That's a combination of, of both. Some of it is just, you know, you, pure imagination, but also it's basic on geopolitics of our world and people don't change. Uh, you know, the, we've been, you know, if you don't learn from history, you're going to repeat history. And that's what's happening even, you know, millennia and millennia, millennia after the world stops spinning is, you know, people are going to protect their territory. People are going to have their, their, their pride hurt or their, <clears throat> they want to have more, more glory. So each person has their sort of own ambition in this world. Because no one quite believes Nixon and the others that the moon's going to crash into the planet. They, they're, they're not concerned about the the greater war. Like, and again, that slight analogy for climate change is that you know there's a glo big global disaster pending, <clears throat> but we're going to fight petty wars uh, along the Russian border, or we're going to have these geopolitical uh, fights here in the U.S. Um, while there's a bigger threat reigning. So that's sort of what's happening in this world is that yes, there's a bigger threat reigning, and people are trying to address it. At the same time, life goes on. There's going to be these petty squabbles. There's going to be these internecine wars. And so <clears throat> it's a great deal. It's just up conflict everywhere. Well, and you still have that even now, but the idea of, okay, well, how would the world look in the future? And how did that impact them in terms of, okay, did they learn from any of this? And the answer is clearly no, that they, they didn't learn from any of the stuff in the past. And some of the technology has been lost, but then they're finding new ways. So some of the things, even in terms of the weapons that you describe, and I'm going, okay, is that a nuke? I don't know if that's a nuke. That might not be quite a nuke. But you were, but because one of the things, and it kind of goes even back into the animals, is the languages have been lost. So none of them are speaking English, and none of them are using the same terms we use. And so even if, okay, Orksa is kind of similar, they're discovering new ways of powering their ships so that at a certain point in the book, it's like, well, we can't go on with what we have in our resources, but this society is using some other way, and they're refining this other raw element and i'm going okay should i know what that is or did you just make that up and, and i'll never know you can tell me afterwards but <laughs> but it's hard to know because it's like oh but did they lose refining technology or did they lose solar technology and how is that impacted with something like the moon being coming closer and closer and how does that impact our ability to use geothermal or solar power and how does that impact us with climate change as well like what what can we continue to use and what can we use more or what could we use to fight climate change and then we're just like well let's just squabble about smaller things and just let the earth stop spinning that's fine exactly i mean i like when i was building the uh the layers to this world when you're when your fantasy world building is is multi-layered uh, you know you need to look at every bit of from technology to religion to the science to uh philosophy to just uh the day in day out of living in this world um you know some of it is the language you know you know would these people call a spoon a spoon you know <laughs> you can go you can go way crazy and have her i just went to ariel and the little mermaid and she's got her little she's she's combing her hair with the fork and they're going oh that's a snarf flat and this is a dingle hopper. Like you didn't call anything dingle hoppers and I appreciate that. Sure. So <laughs> we're in a balance between, you know, being welcoming to the, to the reader about, you know, so you don't get every word has to be different, but at the same time, 
you know, there's going to be new technologies and humans are very inventive and we're going to, you know, we're going to find ways of, of manipulating our environment to, to serve our ends. And so we see different types of technology developing. Some of it's uh, very old school. Some of it's uh, twists on old school. Some of it's brand new stuff. Well, I, I enjoyed reading all of it, even if I had to stop and go, what is that? And never get an answer to it. So sometimes it's just, it's fun to let my brain play with it, but then I've got to stop and then back up because my, my brain wandered off thinking about that. And I missed the next three <laughs> lines and I go, hold on, something just happened. Back it up, back it up. So I can, I can get back there. So you said this is out of four. I was, I was hoping this wouldn't be a trilogy because I felt like by the time we were done with this book, there's too much to put in one book. And I didn't want you to give me an 8 million page book because it was a trilogy. Like Those four. So where are you in terms of, are you done with the third book in terms of writing it? Or is it all written and you were revising it? When do we get the third book? Um, I'm just finishing up Probably the end of April, I should have the draft over to my editor, um, and then it's scheduled probably for you know January, February, March of next year. So it'll be about about the same time as the, of this release next year. This is like an so, annual tradition now. I get annual, a James Rollins book. Exactly. I don't want to. I don't want to leave people you know, hanging too long between. I don't want to. Exactly. Well, and it also helps when you have something this complicated. I appreciate that you're going to add something like a compendium in the third book to help people go, okay, it may have been a minute since you read the first two to be able to remember who people are, where they were, who's alive, who's maimed, who's now married, get it all matched up the way it should be and then start the story. Um, but are you working just on this, the uh, Moonfall saga right now? Or are you working on some of your sci-fi stuff? Because when I first started reading you, you were action adventure sci-fi guy. And I didn't know that you had secretly been writing fantasy under another pen name, Dr. Jim, hiding your identities behind yeah. these nefarious pen names. <laughs> but now we're back to the, the fantasy. So is this taking up everything or are you still doing some of the, I'm doing some of the action stuff? I've always done two books a year. Um, and so I'm continuing to do that. Um, Especially when your books are this big, that's a lot. Exactly. It's a little more challenging when you're, you're dealing with fantasy and thriller because the fantasies are, you know, big. I mean, I, they don't have to be doorstoppers. It's just that that's what I love to read to me. I don't like fantasies that are too thin because by the time you sort of learn the world and learn the characters is over. Um, because I'm, I'm asking for investment of time from my readers and I'm going to ask them to, you know, you're going to have to, to learn a lot about this world. And so and hopefully if you enjoy it, you're gonna to want to spend time in this world. So I want to honor that by making the book chunky. The chunky books. Well, and I think for fantasy readers, that's pretty much what's expected. And when it's a fantasy, that's not what they would say, like a second world fantasy or a high fantasy, then you can maybe get it with a thinner book, but then we're kind of talking about a different genre at that point um, versus something where you're in an immersive world that's very different than our own world. And you have to be in a place where you can dwell and really feel that world. And if it's like, yeah, um, it's it's just a quick 60,000 words, you wouldn't even gotten a feel for it. And it would be, it would feel thin. It would feel not, not satisfying to really really be in that world and get the feel of like, what's it like for these people? I mean, you've got everything from, like you said, these different religions and the way the different, different political parties and different political alliances are happening and people maybe not being in the same alliance that they thought and people showing up where you don't expect them. That doesn't work if you don't have the layers there to, to draw on and go, well, why would this person 
not align with them. Well, it only makes sense if you know, okay, well, this is a place of oppression and this person's against the oppression, even if they're from a privileged class. And why would it matter? Like, I, I always think it's funny in fantasy that we we kind of always devolve back to monarchy and totalitarian governments. Like, I, I would love the utopia of in the future where there's democracy. There's There never seems to be democracy in the future. <laughs> why not? But it never seems to happen. You'll see but, that the third book. Well, yeah. hopefully, because you're you're driving towards that with some of some of your characters pushing for more 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 e I can't say the word egalitarian. There we go, egalitarian, egalitarian treatments and things like that versus just hey, you got to be born first from the right parentage, therefore you're in charge. And then what happens when leaders are corrupt or corrupted or not in their right mind anymore and then who takes over and then let's all fight about that too especially when the moon's about to crash and it seems not quite as important yeah exactly it's uh <laughs> i mean i i enjoy you know exploring different types of society so you know we saw uh the kingdom of hallanday and, and how that's riven you've seen the uh, the southern the, the southern clash and how that's mm -hmm. the second book and we've seen the society and the ice kingdom um, and as we explore in the third book, we're going to be going to the, the uh, sunblasted side of the, of the planet for the third book. And you're going to find a whole new world there that has uh, evolved in an entirely different manner. Um, so it's fun. I mean, I guess what, as a writer, I enjoy just sort of, you know, figuring out what, what not only what life, but biological life is going to be coming from that, but you know, how a society, if there is a society in such a, such a place of extremes, what, what that might look like, you know, if you're in a, in icebound type of society, it's probably going to be fairly intimate because everybody's depending on everybody else to survive for body heat, for body heat alone. <laughs> and so, uh, so I like the idea of, of just trying to look at, you know, how would a society develop if it was under that type of extreme uh, environmental pressure? So that's fun for me to, to explore and, you know, build these layers in. And I think this makes that hopefully makes the world feel more like it's just not a pure fantastical piece of fiction, but you know, something that feels more grounded. Well, and I, I feel like calling yours, I don't know if anybody's labeled it science fantasy, but that's what it feels like to me because there is so much science. And that's what I really appreciate because when someone just snaps a finger and says, yes, and there are magical things and they shoot rainbows out of their eyeballs just because it sounds cool. It's cool, I guess, but it doesn't have that weight to it because I feel like, okay, I don't know every planet. This is the only one we know really with life, but there could be other places that had those things, but I want to see the process of how those things evolved and why the society would have reflected these things because of what it grew up in, because that's how societies are all over and have been through history. But as soon as you said, like, the side that's sunblasted, I mean, it makes sense that we're going there next. I want Gila monsters and Mad Max and really maybe sentient cactuses. I don't know if you can work that in. You're probably done in saying there are no sentient cactuses in this. Well, I can try to fold them in there. Please. You're like, there, there will not be any of that. It's like aloe vera for everything. It's aloe vera is like their Windex. It's in everything. We're just going to, we eat it. We rub it on. I like aloe vera. It's good stuff. It's pale skin, burns easy, burns aloe. I mean, someone okay. like me would not do well in the sun side. I need to be kind of in the kind of warm place. And I wouldn't do well in the snow either. I would freeze. So uh, you asked me earlier, and I sort of sidestepped the question. It was, you know, is there anything else I'm working on? Yes. Uh, so, yeah, so there's a, uh, my next Sigma novel um, is coming out in August. 
it's called Tides of Fire. I describe it as sort of a disaster movie in novel format. I think I'm the most destructive I've ever been in that. Yes. I'm for destroying a lot of stuff on the, on the planet. You know, I always describe my goal in, in life as an author is to uh, eventually uh, blow up every uh, world heritage site on the planet. Oh, nice. You're like, just do you have a so checklist somewhere? I checked off a lot in this next book. See, one of my friends, she's she has now traveled to all seven continents. She just got back from Antarctica and she took like the little thing from Dr. Seuss, all the places you'll go and checks off each one. But see, you have very different goals because you're just trying to destroy them. Not in real life. <laughs> but, <laughs> hmm, what can I do to an ice place? Well, this would be really destructive. But if you're if you're going with the the next book here and you're trying to do like a disaster movie, does that mean we will get a movie from one of these? Who do we have to bribe to make that happen? Because I want to uh, see some of these on big screens. The Sigma Force series um, is another option, and just a couple months ago they renewed the option, which uh, I think is a good sign because I think no one's ever renewed them before. I didn't even know you could do that. I've heard about people like, well, yeah, we sold the rights, and then nothing happened with it. Okay. And I've sold the rights to a lot of different projects, um, but the fact that this company has gone ahead and renewed the option, I think, is a positive sign that you know. And they're looking to do uh, the Sigma Force series more as an episodic series versus mm -hmm. a single film, which I'm I'm sort of happy about because it'd be hard to pare down, uh, you know, the complication of a Sigma novel into, you know, two hour movie. Two hours, no, yeah. and and I feel like especially with people watching more things like on Netflix, Netflix and HBO and Apple and things like Amazon prime. We really pr prefer that now. And I feel like it used to be, Oh, well the book is always better than the movie. And yeah, the book's better than the movie, but if we can get a TV show out of it, the TV show may be able to go to the same kind of depths and explore new things that even the book didn't do. So I I'm like, I would like HBO to make a version of the moonfall saga. Cause they have the budget, I think. Yeah, I guess no sure. one asked me these things, but I would love to see that. And I want to see these, these creatures because we now have the CG to make these things look real. I don't want to see, okay. I did like the clash of the Titan style where it's old and claymation. That was kind of fun, but the eighties through nineties, bad CG. I don't want any of that. I want, I want 2020 and beyond level CG where these things look real, like rocket raccoon, where you can pet the fur. I want to be able to pet the fur on all your animals. I agree with that. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I mean, I would love to see it, uh, you know, brought to the big screen or a little screen or whatever. I um, mean, you describe this the the fantasy series as a scientific fantasy, which is what I also describe it as. Uh, yes. And I describe my Sigma books as scientific thrillers because again, yeah. science in my thrillers. Uh, in those uh, Sigma novels, you know, I start from a grounded place, but by the end of the novel, I'm going to take you somewhere pretty fantastical. Um, and it takes me, you know, the the hundred and forty thousand words to get from point A to point Z. Uh, so to me, I think it's going to take a series also to convincingly take your viewer from the beginning of that series to the fantastical end of that, of that series to try to com combine that into just a, you know, a 90 minute, two hour movie it's hard to, pull off to, to make that authentic and real. So hopefully they, they will continue to do that. I feel like novellas translate well to a, sh to a movie. But anything longer than a novella, you're going to start losing it. And and that's what sometimes they, we've had. But beyond that, sometimes it's kind of hard to do it. Well, I think one of the reasons why books always feel, you know, more or books are better than the films is that someone has to be cut out of a book to become a a movie. Mm -hmm. And I, I reverse engineered that. I was uh, tapped to do the novelization to the, the fourth Indiana Jones movie. And uh, so I had the script while they were filming it. And mm -hmm. I to turn it into a novel, which means then I have to add uh, 
so I had about like 12 different scenes that were never in the films because I, I needed to I needed to flesh out the story. How but, many times did you see the movie then? Or did you just have the, the script to work with? I had the script to work with and I had like a secret website where I could see the dailies being shot because again, the script is not that descriptive about similar to like doing the graphic artists of the creatures. You know, the script is going to give a bare good bones description of, of what a character looks like or what some of the action is occurring. Um, and so... That I'd be have, have the daily so I could see what exactly the uniform they're wearing. I could see exactly what they that uh that jeep they're they're driving in looks like or that train. <laughs> so that that then I can incorporate because they wanted the book to come out the same day that the movie came out. So I had to be I had to write the book in tandem with the production of the film. Okay, there's no pressure there. Not at all. It was very stressful. Especially when I learned that it, you know, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission, because initially I thought I'd have to, you know, run my changes, my additions to the story past, you know, the powers that be. Uh, and a lot of times I was getting pushback whenever I did. So I'm, I'm just going to write it. Just write and, it. And, and then just say, my version's canon. So, so they, <laughs> I don't care what Harrison Ford did. I wrote it. <laughs> they eventually, you know, I turned it in and it's like, I had like one note that they wanted me to change. Uh, but that was it. Otherwise, you know, if I had done it every single time, I th I'm sure I could have I've been beating my head against the wall. That sounds like an unpleasant process to have to do that for each part. So it's like, let me just write what I want. You'll like it. Just, just let's just go with it. And then afterwards, people can go, wow, the book was amazing. I didn't even know there was a book version of it, but I realized they do that so often with anything that has a book and then it becomes a movie. They then release a new cover. But now with everything from Star Wars and everything, like they, everything has a cinematic universe, has novelizations because yeah. people, there's a demand for it. So of course there would be, even if I, I would never have gone no, looking for an Indiana Jones book, but you wrote one. That's awesome. Fun. Yeah. Because basically at the beginning of the, the fourth Indiana Jones, Indiana Jones and the King of the Crystal Skull. Mm -hmm. um, the first time you see Indy, he's, he, he's popping out of the trunk of a, of a vehicle. He's been captured. <laughs> But nowhere in that film does it say how he got captured. <laughs> did you give us that backstory? Pretty wild, you know, pretty wily. So how did somebody catch, you know, it wouldn't be easy to capture Indy. So in the first like 40 pages of my novel is how Indy gets captured. You know, can you, can you tell us who he got player. captured? He's in, he's out in, in, in Mexico on, on a mission and uh, a little foobar occurs in, <laughs> in, uh, in the course of, because of that, he ends up getting captured. But this again, takes 40 pages to describe it. So. Rather than just Indy's in a trunk, then he ends up in a refrigerator. So, I mean, I think that's what most of us took away from that movie was Indy's in a refrigerator to survive a nuclear blast. It works. Exactly. It's, it's great. Nuclear blast work. Dr. Jim, it has been amazing getting to talk to you again. I cannot wait to read the third book. And I'm probably going to start with the compendium part to remind myself of everybody. Or I'll just look at my notes because I took good notes this time, like a good, good student writing down. And I crossed off people's names as you killed them off. So there's that. But I am so excited for people to catch up on the Moonfall Saga and read this second book, The Cradle of Ice, and then go read. It's under. It's all the same pen name now. You're no longer using your other. Yeah, I mean, same as Rollins. I, I gave. It's felt very disingenuous to to, <laughs> to resurrect my old pen name because like you know, even back then it got a little awkward because people I would, i'd show up at a book event i'm james clemens and here's my fantasy novel and then six months later i'm james rollins <laughs> no you're not i was here before well, and, I, and i had a friend who recently signed and she's she signed under her pen name and her picture is still her i'm like this is not a very good disguise anymore that's <laughs> still you we know it's all we know it's all you and no, i write under two pen names but they're both versions of me so it's fine just you dye your hair and put on some sunglasses and go totally different person. 
then you need the voice modulator too. But <laughs> I would love to have you back for book three or see you for more of your Sigma Force books. It's amazing to get to read and talk to you. Thank you for your time. Everybody, thank you for joining us live. If you're watching this on YouTube, please make sure you like the video and subscribe to the Vox Vomitus channel so you can watch episodes of To the Moon Allison and Vox Vomitus and Let's Scare Jennifer to Death. And we'll see you guys next time. Bye.